There's a story often told about the Buddha walking in the forest with a group of monks. And the Buddha bends down. He scoops up a handful of leaves. And he asks, which is more, O monks, the leaves in my hand or the leaves in all the forests? And so, of course, the monks, being almost all completely enlightened beings, knew the easy answer to that. They said, of course, which is more the leaves in all the forests. And the Buddha gave a reply. He said, the knowledge of the fully awakened one is like all the leaves in all the forests. But what I teach is like leaves in my hand. That is all that is needed for freedom, for liberation. That is all that is needed for freedom, for liberation. And oftentimes we hear the pitfalls of the practice and the ways and techniques to handle them and understanding how the mind and the heart works. And it can be also complicated sometimes. Because, of course, the mind is so complex, the heart is so complex. We come to understand the workings of the mind and the heart in all its boundless various ways. But really, it's a lot easier to see the bigger picture, the framework that we're all working in. Manindra used to say frequently, keep it simple and easy, simple and easy. That was his way of saying, what I teach is like leaves in my hand. That is all that is needed for liberation. Keep it simple and easy. So in the early years of practice, I used to ask Manindra how to keep it simple and easy. That was a phrase he used often. And yet to nurture those innate capacities I kept hearing about from others, the capacities for love and forgiveness, for wisdom, for compassion. And Manindra would say in his own words, uh, this is just paraphrasing him, that it's meditation that awakens those qualities so we can discover for ourselves what is our birthright. But it takes more than just meditation, he would say. It takes more than just being in silent retreats, which we are here, of course. It takes more than just sitting on the cushion and watching the breath, noticing what's going on with the mind, being aware of all of that. It takes other mindfulness practices. So mindfulness isn't only about this moment-to-moment -moment experience that we have in a retreat. How do we live this holy life outside of this monastic environment that we've created here? It was often a question of mine as I was growing up in the Dharma because I spent a lot of my time raising children, trying to pay the mortgage and get at least three of my four children through college. And it wasn't easy to slip away once in a while to go to a retreat, which I did get to do 
um, more often than I thought I might have. But I really took seriously how to live my life every day, to look at a framework that Manindra presented to me, a kind of foundation that I could live my life and grow my spiritual life upon this foundation. Manindra talked a lot about the three pillars of the Dharma. That was what his framework was for living one's life. And of course, there were other frameworks that were pointed out by the Buddha, the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Noble Path, um, living the holy life. The three pillars of the Dharma are really easy. They really encompass everything about living our life in a way that nurtures this innate capacity we have for living in a free way, living with a good heart. And these pillars are, number one, the practice of generosity, what is called dana. Number two is the practice of living in harmony, which is called sila. And the third one is the development of the mind and the heart. Mind and heart are really one word. They're not separate things in the Dharma or the Dhamma understanding. It's called citta. So sometimes we say mind, but we're including heart. Sometimes we say heart, but we're including mind. Sometimes we say them both. So the development of the mind and the heart is called bhavana. Bhavana means bringing forth what has not yet been developed. And this is what we're doing in our practice, bringing forth what has not yet been developed. And that comes in two parts, the development of bhavana. It comes in the uh, practice of concentration, and it also is uh, through the development of wisdom. I'll speak about bhavana in another talk. But today, I just like to cover dana and sila, or generosity and living in harmony. And so with these three, I've learned that the simplicity of paying attention to these three areas of my life, dana, giving, sila, living in harmony, and developing the mind and the heart through concentration and wisdom, those are the areas that uh, make a workable framework for me in my life. They've been very reliable. Sometimes I can't do a lot of sitting. These past years, I've been able to do more. But I learned that practicing generosity, practicing the precepts, and seeing what I needed more to do really helped me as I went along. So these practices of dana and sila, generosity and living in harmony, they are also mindfulness practices because we really have to be mindful, not only of what's coming up and what we can do in the moment to either go forth if it's wholesome or refrain if it's unwholesome, but when we know that we need to develop 
something, like maybe we need to develop a greater sense of letting go through generosity. Maybe we need to uh, develop a greater sense of renunciation through letting go of our need to speak out when we know it might cause harm or it might, it's a little iffy if it'll be good for others to hear what we need to say at that time. So not only do these two promote a sense of well-being for others, of course, but they promote a deep sense of well-being for ourselves. Because when you examine for yourself how it is for you when you practice generosity, when you practice actively non-harming, really understand what it means. When you take a step and you see your foot just automatically go anywhere when you might be seeing an insect there. How that's different when we just go ahead and step on the insect than when you take a step and you just see your foot turn a little bit to refrain from harming a living being. It's really, these little acts are so important in our life. The little acts of giving that we do so important in our life. They really lead to a heart that's fully liberated. When we act out in these ways, when we give our action this and our words this kind of careful attention, we're not so plagued by feelings of unworthiness or feelings of disconnection or feelings of self-deprecation. In fact, we feel the opposite of that. Not in a way that swells our, our heads up, but we feel like we're really worthy to be a human being. We're doing our best to be a good human being in this world. We feel connected to others. We don't feel lonely or separate. I remember times when I would leave Manindra at home in this little town of Hali'imaili that I lived in for a long time. And um, I'd say to him, I'm sorry to leave you alone, but I have to go to work. And I'd go off to work and I'd come home maybe at lunchtime or later. And I'd ask him, were you okay? Did you feel lonesome? I'm sorry to leave you alone. And he would say, I feel okay. I have all the insects here. He would even actually feed the insects at home, give the ants food. The dog and the cat are here. Even the celestial beings in the trees, I chant for them. It would nurture them. It would be food for them, he would say. And he would say, I feel connected to all of them. And it was just a living example to me. He wasn't kidding. He wasn't exaggerating. He wasn't, um, you know, trying to impress me. It was part of his real life. And so that feeling of connection is there instead of the opposite. All of these ways, this feeling of deep connection, of worthiness, this uh, feeling of seeing that we have, we're good beings, we're good human beings. This gives us a sense of faith and confidence in ourselves. 
And we need that so much to keep going on the path. If we're honest with ourselves and we look at how our lives really are, there are so many times in the day when I, even with all the practice I've done, can look at my own heart and see, oh, I feel a little shaky about this or about that. As many times as I've given Dharma talks, I always feel a little bit shaky about, is this going to be good enough for everyone? You know, I want to not waste anybody's time and to give uh, the best of the Dharma that I can offer. But when I connect with some kind of faith or confidence I have in the Dharma, in myself as a human being, even if it's just for a moment, it all disappears. It also makes it easier for the mind to be calm. It not only gives us a sense of faith and confidence, but it calms the mind when we feel a sense of connection with others, when we feel a sense of worthiness in ourselves. Calming the mind, bring a sense of concentration. It can unify the mind and the body. After an act of giving or an act of saying something beautiful to someone else, look inside your heart and feel what it feels like. Or come to the sitting cushion when you know that, uh, when you remember that you've done something good during the day, when you've given something, when you've done your best to offer what you can here in terms of your service. And when you come to the sitting cushion and you feel that sense of goodness and faith in yourself, the mind becomes concentrated and very calm very easily. It brings out that unshakable faith that we have in our ability to be free. Sometimes when I don't believe that I'm doing well in my practice, we all have that. I think of the times when I've given, or maybe just during that day, or when I've refrained from writing a note that I could have written. That makes the mind settle a lot. This is from the heart essence of the great perfection. Um, now in our day-to-day -day lives, we know that the more stable, calm, and contented our mind is, the more feelings and experiences of happiness we will derive from it. The more undisciplined, untrained, and negative our mind is, the more we suffer mentally and physically as well. So we can see only too well that a disciplined and contented mind is a source of our happiness. So these two, giving, generosity, and also living in harmony, also called morality, these two are foundations for ever-deepening wisdom. It makes the mind settle, calm. These are disciplines mindfulness trainings, just like we have the training on the cushion, off of the cushion. These are the trainings. 
Many times when the Buddha offered the teachings, even among those who were highly developed in their practice, times when I've gone on retreat in Burma, there would be people there who were heads of monasteries in Vietnam, from Vietnam, from Thailand, from France. And still, Upandita would give these teachings of Dana and Sila. They're called the gradual teachings. These were given first so that we, can, we could build our practice on these. Sometimes there would be whole months or two months of teachings only on living in harmony. And the thought would go by, oh, you know, this is like for beginners. But there would be many people there, not beginners. So it's important to pay attention to these, to come back to these basics that are part of living the holy life and so precious. Come back to these over and over again. When these are in place, the heart and mind can open more easily. So I'd like to explore the first part of the foundation more fully, these uh, foundations, three foundations. And the first part is a practice of giving, the action of actually giving and this is from the inner attitude of generosity. So dana really includes two parts. It includes the actual offering of the gift, and it includes this conscious intention, or this conscious being conscious of uh, the intention to give, and then following that through. It's because of the mental state or the heart state of generosity that the act of giving takes place. And when these two come together, it's said that dana is complete. Because we can have many moments of feeling generous, but we don't act it out. But when we feel generous and we act it out, this is the completion. So dana has two aims, and they both come from ever-deepening understanding. When we understand that the first aim is, of course, to help others, this is where it comes from. Really, that act of generosity, before that act of generosity may have come a feeling of compassion, where we want to help others. We want to give of ourselves our time, our energy, our kindness, our material resources. We want to do that because we feel it may relieve another person of their suffering at that time or in the future. And so it inspires in us um, a thought and some planning of what can we do to help another being or other beings. and. It's a great sense of joy when you really look in your heart to see what that means for you in that moment or in those moments. Because it, it takes not just one moment, but it takes a lot of moments to uh, 
act it all out to bring it forth. I was on my way to a talk in Seattle that I think a few of you were at uh, when I went to Seattle this past January or February. And what happened on my way there was there was this incredibly um, destructive earthquake in Haiti. And I was thinking about my talk as I was walking from one uh, flight to another, from my flight into San Francisco and then uh, going on into Seattle from there. And I happened to turn and I saw the newspaper headline about this very destructive earthquake in Haiti. And right at that moment, I had the thought, whatever I receive from that talk that, that I was offering um, in uh, Seattle, I would give everything from that talk to the uh, victims in Haiti. And I was so happy to do that. From that moment on, I just felt the incredible happiness in my heart to be able to give. And then when I told the people, many of you were there, you were very, very generous. I mean, the amount of Donna that came from that, that one talk that I gave that evening was quite astounding. And all of that went to those people, and all of you were involved who were at that talk in Seattle. When you think about it, how when we give to others, it not only relieves their suffering, but it inspires in them a sense of worthiness. Just think of how when you've received something that someone has given you, it could have been something really, really small, but when you got it, you thought, wow, I really feel worthy of this person's friendship, of this person's, all this person's planning and whatever this person did in order to give me this gift, this beautiful, it could have been a very, very small gift, but you really saw all the steps that that person had to make. The thought came up, the acting on the generosity, what the person did, the giving of the gift. When we receive a gift like that, or when you give it to another person, and really there's a lot of conscious intention around it, the person who's receiving it, and it might be yourself, feels, I am a worthy person, or you are a worthy person. And that in itself is a beautiful gift to give to someone when they feel that they're loved. It's not just with that we say, I love you, but it's we act it out. Even the Buddha said, you know, to give gifts to your loved ones. It's, it was part of one of his admonitions to give gifts to those you love. So it makes others feel loved. Uh, we acknowledge in others, I recognize your goodness. I recognize your beauty. I recognize your worthiness in this life. Here on retreat, 
I want to point out that all the people who have given uh, to this retreat, all those who serve this retreat, um, from the very beginning, from Susan, who's taken your registrations and gone always beyond the call of duty to do anything possible to serve everybody, Candle, uh, our mother hand manager, <laughs> and the cooks, Margie and John and Andrea, and also Sister Virignani, who's come to help in her ways. Everyone has given freely, actually with a lot of joy, feeling the worthiness of all the beings here who have come to do practice, um, not at all hesitating to give of their time, give up their work, and uh, the income that comes from their work to be here. So a lot of this service that's being offered to all of you is being given in the, ser in the sense of you are all worthy of our honor and respect for your practice in the Dharma. Every day a meal here is offered. Every year when we've done this retreat now for, um, we've been giving retreats for 15 years, from the very beginning, we said, we'll do it the way it's done in Burma. We'll say, um, we'll send a letter or we'll let people know that we're offering a retreat. And whoever wants to give, as we have done in Burma, whoever wants to give a meal, you have the opportunity to give. And in the very first retreat, we never knew what would happen, Steve and I, because it, was, it wasn't done that way yet in, in our particular tradition that we've come from in the West. But we took a chance and we figured that, well, if no one gave, we would give all the meals and that would be an honor for us to do that. But we sent out the word and every single meal, if maybe almost every single meal, but I think every single one was given from that very first retreat. People gave from all over the world. And since then, every, from every uh, single year, every retreat that's been given on Maui, every meal has been offered by someone, or almost every meal. If it wasn't offered by someone, we offered it, Steve and I. The meals in the past days were given, and the meals in the future days were given by some of you here, or will be given by some of you here and people from different parts of the world. You'll see on the board. So <clears throat> a sense of worthiness is what we feel when we know that uh, we're being given not only just the food, not just the food, but the love that comes from that. It may inspire gratitude within our hearts uh, when we receive it. 
a wholesome attitude that is a gain for us when we feel gratitude to those who have given. That is food. That is nourishment for our own hearts. So that is the first aim. It's to help others, of course. And the second aim is really that we support our own well-being. We can understand with wisdom, with a deeper sense of understanding that when we give, we support our own well-being because wholesome states of mind are developed within us. In order to give, there has to be an absence of aversion when we give wholeheartedly. And there's a presence of loving kindness. Oftentimes, that specific kind of loving kindness, which is compassion, would be there. Oftentimes, there's a joy. We, we see the joy in others for receiving the gift. And so we feel joy in our own hearts because we see their joy. Equanimity. Sayadaw Upandita says, in order to part with what is ours, the energy or our material resources, there has to be some equanimity in order to let go, not hold on, not be reactive. So it brings an immediate happiness to ourselves that really no one can take away that kind of happiness. Think about times when you've given, how it's completely surrounded by happiness. You think about giving to someone, it's in your mind, and then you act it out, both times feeling happy. And then, in retrospect, you look back and you feel happy that you've given. One time, um, I tried to remember a different story today. I often tell the same stories in the practice of generosity. I tried to remember a different uh, story about giving, and it was about giving something very, very simple. When I went to Australia to do my first retreat, long retreat, back in the 1980s, I didn't really know what to offer. I wanted to bring a gift, as is our custom in Hawaii and also my own cultural custom coming from the Philippines. I wanted to bring a gift to the teacher. So I thought, what could I give to Sayadaw Upandita? I'd never met him before. And I thought to bring him a pair of brown socks, because that's what I learned he could use. And I learned that it was going to be cold when I went there. So I brought a pair of brown socks to him. So I remember offering him those socks. I was sitting in front of him. I said I had something to offer. I did my bows. And I held out you know, this kind of um, shape and form of something brown. <laughs> and I was holding it in my hands and giving it to Sayadaw Upandita. And he kind of looked at it quizzically, wondered, what, what is this, you know? Probably he didn't receive very many socks from women, 
but being a mother, you know, that's what I think about. Um, and so he received the socks from me. Um, I gave it to the translator, who then gave it to him. And then he looked at that, those socks, and I was remembering the smile on his face from getting those socks. Probably something, it was a little bit humorous, probably for him, I don't know. And there was a lot of delight in his mind from getting that simple, simple gift. And I think back on, on that moment and how much happiness it gives me to just give something small like that. So little things have powerful effects in the long range of our life, and not to take it lightly. Um, you know, you might be wanting to hear some great stories of enlightenment, um, but that's not all there is to the holy life. Really, it's a very small part of the holy life. This part of the holy life takes up much more room. This is from the Iti Vutaka. <coughs> if beings knew as I know, this is the, these are the words of the Buddha, if beings knew as I know the results of sharing gifts, they would not enjoy their use without sharing them with others, nor would the taint of stinginess obsess their heart. And even if it were their last and final bit of food, they would not enjoy its use without sharing it, if there were anyone to receive it. So the far-reaching benefit and result of the practice of generosity of course is the development of the heart and mind of non-greed letting go, letting go deeply, not just being able to let go of our opinions and something that's material, but letting go of greed. Utejaniya says, this practice of generosity is giving away your greed. In every moment that we give, we're giving, uprooting a bit of that tendency to hold on, to cling, so as we continually practice, we see that it becomes natural for the mind to let go sometimes, to let go of concepts, especially on the spiritual path. There are a lot of concepts that we hold about liberation. Letting go of the concepts, letting go of ideas and opinions that keep us not free from feeling deeply peaceful. Achancha says, if you let go a little, you'll have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you'll have a lot of peace. If you let go completely, you will have complete peace and freedom. So this letting go completely is really what the heart and mind is going towards not to be satisfied with whatever little moments of peace and freedom or thoughts that we have of our present realization, but really working on this um, 
understanding of the importance of generosity. Eventually, at the end of our physical life, or when the conditions are right before the end of our physical life, we can let go of all formations. We can let go into that complete peace and freedom. So dana, it's about benefiting others. It's about that long-range view of letting go of greed, benefiting ourselves. It's awakening the beautiful qualities amidst our day-to-day lives and not thinking that they're like not as precious. There are small miracles to cultivate every day. This is from Shantideva in The Miracle of Awakening. He says, as a blind person feels when one finds a pearl in a dustbin, so am I amazed by the miracle of awakening rising in my consciousness, the nectar, the treasure that lifts us above poverty into the wealth of giving to life, the tree that gives shade to us when we roam about scorched by life, the bridge that takes us across the stormy river of life, the cool moon of compassion that calms our mind when it is agitated, the sun that dispels the darkness, the butter made from the milk of kindness by churning it with the Dharma. It is a feast of joy to which all are invited. So this, this is the first pillar, generosity, giving. The second is sila, sometimes it's translated to morality. But when you look closely, it's really about living in harmony by the careful consideration and careful acting out of our speech and our behavior. This is a carefulness that we have about being in life. It's not just being conscious of what's going on in our minds, but being careful of what and how we act it out. It's a deep respect for all beings, including ourselves, especially. When we are careful about this, we see that it's not just about developing the outer harmony with others, but it creates this harmony within ourselves. We don't find ourselves fighting with ourselves, like the part of ourselves that wants to give but then feels stingy, or the part of ourselves that wants to say nice things but we have this chatter in our mind that's not so nice. We can feel harmonious within us. There have been quite a few junctures in my own practice when I realized that I really need to clean up my act a little bit more Usually it's after or during a time of practice when I've had time without being so busy 
when I've had time to really contemplate what am I doing? How am I doing my life? What can I do that refines my practice of living in harmony? It may be just a small thing that will do that. But it could be something really, really important that keeps the harmony in my relationships, in my family, among my colleagues. It's usually after I did something or I said something that caused some harm or some kind of upheaval um, that makes me feel this way. Or maybe I see that it happened with someone else and I think, ooh, that must have been hurtful to that person and to those around that person, which could have been me. I could have been one of the ones hurt. And I want to do something that um, goes in a different direction. So we have the precepts for that kind of training. These are called precepts for training, not commandments. These precepts that we take every morning when we say, I undertake the training to refrain from, and then whatever it is, from harming any living being, from uh, taking what is not offered, from um, telling a lie, or not being completely truthful. And there are others, of course. These are trainings because the Buddha knew that it takes great compassion for ourselves and others to be able to live this life. And it was out of great compassion that the Buddha gave these trainings because he saw that it's not easy if we don't have some kind of way that we are um, practicing renunciation. So we need to remind ourselves often when we catch the tendencies for us to act out the opposite of the precepts, to take something that hasn't been offered or to um, say something that isn't exactly true. I tell this uh, story because I want to remind myself often that when, when I was in that retreat in Australia many years ago, um, I was reporting in a group to Seda Upandita about practice. And some of the people re- were reporting what they experienced. And it was something about, oh, you know, being able to sit for long periods of time and not missing, always being mindful, not missing any moment of mindfulness. and. Um, not having any hindrances or very few, something like that. And yeah, I'm sure. And uh, so I, I reported something that was pretty um, straightforward. I thought maybe I shouldn't say too much, but I just I did say that I was experiencing some hindrances, which was true. That evening. Um, after we reported as a group, I heard some of the others, the Sayadaw gave a talk and said that if any one of you have not reported precisely, truthfully, this is not good for your practice. 
So I would like you to line up tomorrow and to let me know that you have told something that wasn't exactly true. And this will help your practice to be truthful because how can you realize the truth if you cannot tell the truth? And so from that time, I was precisely true, truthful about what my practice was. I reported to the minute how many hours I sat and how many hours I walked. If I said that there are times that I experience this, I would stop myself and I would say, a few times I experienced this, but not all the time. And just really to the T, precise about what I would say, I really took it to heart that how can we experience the truth if we cannot speak the truth? So there were people that lined up, <laughs> but I found, I really examined my conscience and I didn't have to line up. It said that the proximate causes for careful attention to arise, the sila to arise, are what is called two guardians of the world. I was really interested when I heard this in one of those long retreats where Sayadaw Upandita talked about sila for the whole retreat, which was two months. And um, these two guardians of the world are called Hiri and Otapa. These are Pali words, the ancient language that the teachings were recorded in. Hiri and Otapa, these two guardians of the world, are the underpinnings of the precepts. There are a lot of fine translators who refuse to use nothing but the Pali words because it says these Pali words describe much more than their English translations. The English translations are very poor. So hiri is translated as moral shame. So obviously in our Western culture that wouldn't be a very good way to understand the guardian of one of the guardians of the world, moral shame. This kind of moral shame is not uh, associated with self-deprecation or self-aversion. This moral shame is an inner sense that our words and behavior don't feel right. It's an intuitive sense that this is hurtful to myself. It comes out of respect for others, but it feels like, ooh, if I said this, we would feel like this wouldn't be right to say it. it. It feels like a kind of, maybe we haven't said it or acted it out, but it feels like a kind of shameful feeling that I even thought about it. Um, but it's good that it was caught. And the, in, the deep sense is it's hurtful to myself. We see the danger of putting this, acting this out. There's a danger of that, that is like a seed falling into our karmic stream, which will someday bear fruit, which will be unpleasant for us. It comes out of respect for our dignity, out of respect for our integrity. It's good to think about this, 
we often don't think in those terms, at least I don't think in those terms, that will this add to my self-respect in the good sense of the word? Will this add to a sense of dignity to my life? I want to be able to remember that more often. I don't think I remember it as often as I could. So it's knowing what creates a a deep sense of dignity for ourselves. That's Hiri. And the other guardian is Otapa. This is moral dread or moral fear. It's a healthy form of fear. It's not a kind of fear that where it's, um, you know, coming from hatred. But it's a form of uh, fear that we know that some defilements are coming up that would cause harm to others if we acted them out. Defilements meaning greed or hatred or delusion. That if we acted these out, it would break the harmony of our community. If we said something wrong, uh, we told a lie, or we said something that would harm someone else, where it was coming from a sense of really harming that person. We might dread the difficulties that would come from that. That would be a healthy form of dread. I don't know if you heard the news just in the past month or weeks where um, this young woman from Ireland, I think, in, in Massachusetts, she, she hung herself. Uh, she was in her early teens because she was taunted by her classmates and she couldn't take it. And among her classmates, they didn't have this kind of otapa, this kind of moral fear, or moral dread, or hiri, or seeing the lack of dignity to themselves, and just acted it out. And so now, most of them, if not all of them, are being tried, or, or, or they're being brought to the legal process. And so if we would think about this ahead of time, how it would harm others in the community, I'm sure they're in their own way completely devastated, not knowing what that taunting would do. So we dread the difficulties that could come from that. We think ahead. We might fear losing the trust of others, especially the wise, the virtuous, whom we treasure. A lot of times I think, oh, if I do this, it may not look so good in the eyes of my senior colleagues or um, those that I respect. And it really stops me from saying or doing something. So we have a healthy fear of being plagued by blame from others, by self-blame. The Buddha said that this magnificent chariot of of the Eightfold Noble Path has Hiri and Otapa as its backrest. If you have this backrest, you will have something to rely upon 
depend on, something on which you can sit comfortably as you travel towards your aspiration. If these qualities are weak, one loses, one risks loses, losing mindfulness and all the dangers that ensue. So these two guardians of the world, Hiri and Otapa, they are part of our mindfulness practice. They keep us onward leading instead of going backwards into falling into the defilements and being influenced by them. So sila and dana are beautiful inner places of protection. In their own ways, they're beautiful forms of renunciation. It gives us strength when we contemplate, when we practice them. They're sturdy foundations of the pillars of our spiritual life, not to be minimized. So I'd like to end with um, this is a, a sort of poem that Seda Upandita wrote after that first retreat I did in Australia, that long, first long retreat. And it's called Freedom. Of course, someone translated this for him. Adorned with a garland of giving, feeling joy and dignity with kind living, dwell only in states of clarity, great beauty results with integrity. Adorned with the fragrance of virtuous activity, for others a care and sensitivity, dwell only in states of contentment, a heart removed from the thorns of resentment, adorned with the sweetness of tranquility, soft rapture from a life of simplicity, dwell only in states of calm peace, mental turbulence and distraction all cease. Dwell only in states of peace and happiness, a mind of wise discernment and openness. The three poisons of wrong view, conceit and craving, no longer hinder or cause inner tightening. Vow deeply to develop the true way, adorned in the heart, then freedom will lay. So let's sit for a moment and let those words dissolve. 